everyone. Our scripture uh, passage today comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. I invite you to turn there with me, Mark chapter 6. And we'll be looking at verses 1 to 6. Again, I encourage you to keep your, keep your Bible open uh, as we uh, go through this passage together, that you will be able to test all that you hear uh, by the Word of God in front of you, and uh, that we can together uh, see uh, great things uh, in His Word. So let's pray together that the Lord will bless the reading of the of the scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your glory, uh, that we can sing uh, of your glory uh, today. Help us then, Lord, to see uh, this morning again that as we open the word of God, that there indeed is glory uh, on every page. And Lord, how we are dependent on your Holy Spirit uh, to reveal that glory to us. But we thank you that you have promised to do so. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, reading from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6, just the first six, uh, first six verses. He, that's Jesus, went away from there. Remember, he's been uh, ministering on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, in and around Capernaum. He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled uh, because of their unbelief. And he went out among the villages teaching. This is the... Word of God, inerrant in all that it teaches, infallible, uh, it cannot be uh, broken. Uh, I wonder if you've ever been to a, uh, a class uh, reunion uh, back in your hometown. Now, maybe some of you have grown up here, and so you're not going back hometown. You're just, you've always been here. But nonetheless, uh, have you ever been to a class uh, reunion? I never have, but I wish uh, I, wish I could. Uh, it's been almost 35 years since I graduated from uh, high school there in southern Ontario in Canada. Always wondered what became of my good friend Ben, uh, with whom I traded hockey cards, you know, as a little boy. Um, or, uh, or my track and field rival, uh, Carl, uh, who always seemed to beat me in the 100 meter by just a hair all the time. Carl. Yes. Uh, I, um, or Paul, you know, Andre comes to mind, or Sean. Kind of wonder what they would think of uh, the jean jacket, leather jacket wearing, long hair guy they knew as Peter. Who is, excuse me, a pastor now? Mm. So I'm hoping for that today. I think of going home uh, for that reunion when I read this passage in Mark 6. Because for Jesus, we're told here, it was... 
Uh, it was a homecoming of sorts, but as we will find out, it turns out that Jesus, whom we've been reading about, and all that he's doing is uh, not going to be welcomed back as a hometown hero in the town in which he grew up. And we want to know why. In chapter 5, you could say in many ways that uh, it could be called the faith chapter. We saw all sorts of wonderful examples of faith. The the demoniac who Jesus healed, and then he goes about uh, to the Decapolis, spreading the word about Jesus, telling about Jesus' mercy to him and all that the Lord had done for him. Great example of faith. We read about the woman who had the, the bleeding And uh, in faith, she comes uh, against all what society might say about her. She comes close to Jesus to touch him. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. A wonderful picture of faith. And then, of course, we had Jairus, whose little daughter was was dying at the point of death. And uh, Jesus saying to him, don't fear, only believe. And they continue to go on to his home. And he is able to see his daughter raised from the dead. And and he had faith in Jesus. So chapter 5 is a wonderful chapter. Uh, that some have called the faith chapter. And so chapter 6, by contrast, could be called the no-faith chapter. Because in chapter 6, we're going to read uh, about the people of Nazareth and Jesus' hometown. We're going to read about uh, those who do not eventually welcome the apostles who are bringing the gospel. And we're going to read about King Herod himself. And so we're heading into a chapter that's going to show us uh, a lack of faith on the part of many. But then later in this chapter 2, we're going to find uh, Jesus continuing to do wonderful works. There's going to be the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is going to walk on water, uh, and he's going to heal many. So his great works and faith of many will return. But in his hometown, the people who knew him best are astonished Uh, They are offended, and Jesus will eventually tell us they are unbelieving. And so first, an astonished people. He went away from there, verse 1, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. What's the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done Uh, By his hands. You'll remember Jesus has been uh, in Capernaum uh, at the home of Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue, uh, ministering to his daughter. And sometime later, the Bible says he came to his hometown. It means his own country. Actually, translated, he came to his fatherland, is the word, about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum, southwest. Uh, west of the Sea of Galilee, the place where he uh, where he grew up is the idea. Uh, you remember, though, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, spent much time in Capernaum, one of the Gospels takes place uh, Jesus is regularly referred to in the Bible as Jesus of uh, Nazareth. Uh, for safety reasons, had to go to uh, had to go to Nazareth uh, and not back to Bethlehem. Remember, uh, Nathaniel would say to Philip, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" So apparently, Jesus' hometown did not have the best of the best of reputations. You remember the inscription on the cross: "Jesus of Nazareth, the King of 
the Jews. You'll remember when Saul, on the road to Damascus, sees this bright light and is thrown down. He says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus answered, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Well, here, Jesus comes to his hometown. He goes into the synagogue, as was his practice, on the Sabbath. uh, And he teaches uh, the people. And the Bible says here that the initial reaction to Jesus seems somewhat favorable. To be astonished uh, means to be, uh, certainly means to be uh, impressed, uh, means to be amazed uh, at what we're reading. Kind of like you have been amazed, hopefully, as we've gone through the beginning of the gospel. What? Raising people from the dead? Just, uh, you know, touching someone who is sick and makes them well. Well, that's pretty amazing. That's, uh, that's pretty astonishing. Well, these folks were astonished. Now, being astonished, of course, is not the same as having faith. In Jesus, but it is to be somewhat impressed. Uh, in fact, you could probably translate it flabbergasted. Flabbergasted. This is this is so unusual. What we're seeing in the life of uh, Jesus. Now, what had Jesus taught them though that was so astonishing? Well, the Gospel of Luke kind of helps us here because in Luke chapter four, uh, many believe we have the same incident in the life of Jesus. Jesus in the synagogue. If it's not the exact same incident. Uh, It's a similar incident where Jesus comes into the synagogue. And what did he do in Luke 4? What kind of teaching did he give? Uh, Well, he took the scroll. uh, He was given the scroll of Isaiah. And Jesus read these words in the synagogue. He might have read them here. And this is what he would have said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So that's the kind of thing that uh, whether it's here uh, or other times, whether this is the same incident may not be. But in either case, this is what Jesus would say and teach in the synagogue. So they were astonished. Because the claim Jesus was making for himself, that he was himself fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah of hundreds of years ago. He was preaching, you remember, the kingdom of God had come in him. He indeed was proclaiming good news. He was setting captives at liberty. Remember the demoniac. Um, And he was uh, relieving the oppressed. Remember the woman who had been bleeding for so many years and was beyond hope. And, um, and these folks in Nazareth, of course, would have heard of his mighty works, as they say, done by his hands. His hands. Remember? Jairus' 12-year-old daughter. He took her by the hand. And so, so they've heard all these things. So they recognize his words, wisdom. They recognize his works. Uh, they recognize all this about Jesus. Powerful things. And so their astonishment makes them ask questions. Where did this man, could be translated this way, where did this fellow get these things? Uh, where did he get this wisdom? They're saying, how, how is this possible? Um, they knew this Jesus growing up. How could this be? Now you might be thinking to yourself, uh-huh, well the obvious answer is, uh, he got it from God. You know, how, that's what he's been saying. Uh, why do these folks seem so puzzled and flabbergasted at everything that Jesus is doing? 
Where do these words and works come from? That it might be from God, and that Jesus might actually be who he says he is, doesn't occur to them. Because though they're astonished, God is not in their thoughts. Though impressed by the words and the works, they don't deny them, they uh, are thinking completely on a horizontal plane. It can't be understood. Um, Their thinking is limited to this world, to uh, natural explanations. Jesus didn't go to a rabbinical school. How did he get this? Um, For all practical purposes, they had shut God out of their thinking. Which should surprise you, because they were in the synagogue. They knew about God. But he was not functioning in their, in their thoughts and in their life. Their astonishment then quickly turns, the Bible says, to offense. Notice what verse 3 says. Uh, is not, they continue with their questions, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James? We know these folks. James, Josie, Judas, Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And the Bible says they took offense at him, or they had reason to be, they believed they had reason to be offended by him. They didn't like what he was saying, and they were offended. John Calvin writes this, They ought to have perceived the hand of God, but their ingratitude made them cover themselves with darkness. We see then, said Calvin, that it is not mere ignorance that hinders men, but that of their own accord they search after grounds of offense to prevent them from following the path to which God invites. It goes like this. Has someone ever, um, has someone ever told you they'd be a Christian, except they've got this one problem. They just can't understand This, that, or the other thing. They just can't get over this particular issue. So you spend all sorts of time with them, maybe weeks on end. You go through a Bible study, you you, you show them, and uh, and then eventually after four weeks, maybe four months, you get to the end and and they say, oh, okay, I I see, I see now. And then you say, oh, okay, so you're, and they say, well, I've got got another question. That's been, actually, you know, that was one question, but I've got got three or four more (laughs) that, that are really bothering me. Now, sometimes we have legitimate questions to ask because we're ignorant and we don't understand. Uh, that's, that's true. And we lack knowledge and we want to know more and are happy when someone shows that to us. We say, I see. And, and then that barrier is taken away. But sometimes, sometimes the Bible tells us we're asking questions not because we don't see and know already, but because we're looking for reasons To justify our rejection of the truth. And that is what's happening here in Nazareth. The the questions pile up. Isn't this the carpenter? You'll find this interesting. The word carpenter there is the Greek word tekton, from which we eventually get the word uh, technician. Isn't this a technician? You know, isn't this a craftsman? It means to, uh, the tekton was someone who brought something forth. So isn't this just a craftsman? 
Uh, isn't this a, uh, you know, a worker with wood or something like that? He's just, he's just one of us regular folks. I mean, how much wisdom could come from there? Remember Nathaniel. Uh, what good can come out of Nazareth? Uh, but here it's talking about what Jesus does uh, and the family that everybody knows. Here Jesus is called a son of Mary. Uh, Luke says son of Joseph. Here we learn about Jesus' family. We actually learn their names. Two of them will appear later in the scripture. James, uh, who would eventually be leading the church in Jerusalem, gives us the book of James. We read about Judas, also known as Jude, from whom we have a book of the Bible. Josie's and Simon we never hear of again. And we hear that Jesus has at least one sister. He has more than one sister. And their point seems to be this. His family's all here. We know them. Um, uh, we know where they're from. We know who the parents are and what the family trade is. The point is, he's just like he's just like one of us. What makes him different? Remember the passage from the scroll of Isaiah that Luke mentioned speaks of the spirit of the Lord upon him, him being anointed, him being sent to proclaim the gospel and good news. Now, those words sound good. The folks say they sound good. Surely some impressive things have been happening. But who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? We know that family. We know where he grew up. And the Bible says they took offense at him. That is, the word offense there is scandalized. They were scandalized because of him. They were uh, uh, offended at him. They were stumbling over what he was saying. That's what that word scandal means. To stumble over. They were offended at the claims he was making. And Jesus said to them, verse 4, A prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, uh, and in his own household. And the question, of course, friends, is why did they take offense? Why did they take offense? I mean, they admit his words are wise and gracious. They admit he's doing mighty works. So why take offense? That's such astonishing things. Well, what does a carpenter, someone just like us, know about prophecy and its fulfillment? And how can he make, how can he make such grand claims about himself? That he himself is the anointed one. He is the one who proclaims the good news. He is the one who sets people free. Him! We know where he went to school and where he fished and where he swam. Over in Luke, Luke tells us that at this point they also say, well, you know, you've done all sorts of miracles in Capernaum. Do one here. Prove it. They're offended and they demand more proof because they certainly were not about to worship him. Have you ever heard the expression... Uh, Familiarity breeds contempt. That is, the more you become familiar with something, uh, not only do you not quite love it anymore, but you actually tend to, to push it away. In Nazareth, in the synagogue, among the covenant people of God, remember, 
The very fact that they knew Jesus so well, they knew the stories of his life, knew his words and works, knew them for so long, heard and saw him so often, heard his wise words, heard of his mighty works, knew a lot more about Jesus than, than you and I do. Uh, caused them to look down on him, be offended at him, make demands of him, and eventually be repelled by him, and they would not worship him or give themselves to him. Why do churches, why do professing churches around the world and in the United States of America, why do professing churches die? How does faith grow cold? How does the next generation and covenant children walk away from the church, walk away from the Lord Jesus? How does that that happen? Uh, Friends, because to know and hear and uh, talk about Jesus is not the same as believing Trusting, loving, adoring, cherishing Jesus. They were astonished. They were offended. And Jesus helps us out here to understand what's going on. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there. Except that he put his hands on a few people and healed them. And he marveled because... Of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. My words to Jairus, which we read in the last chapter, first do not fear, only believe. Now it's no coincidence here in the Gospel of Mark that in the very next passage we read uh, an example of the covenant people of God who had all the promises and the covenants in the Word. Failing to do just that. Do not fear, only believe. Very next passage is here's folks who've grown up with all the promises, all the word of God, but they're unbelieving, says Jesus. Did you know uh, that there are only uh, there are only two places in the Bible, two places in the Gospels, uh, where we read of Jesus marveling? Or of Jesus himself being amazed. The first time uh, we've heard about it, and remember it is in Luke 7, verse 9, when you might recall there is, a, there is a Roman centurion. A Gentile comes to Jesus, he's in need, and you remember that centurion says to Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus, and the Bible says, Jesus marveled at him because he's not seen such faith among Israel. So there, the point is, the faith of this man in the Word of God was so completely unexpected to Jesus, he marveled at it. And so here's the other time uh, that the Bible says Jesus was amazed, or Jesus was uh, marveling at something. Here, Jesus is marveling at those who are in covenant with God, uh, but expressing uh, unbelief. In Jesus, where faith would have been expected. Why is that? 
Well, because these people to whom Jesus is speaking had had so much light, had had so much revelation, uh, knew the words of Jesus, knew the works of Jesus, and they actually had Jesus in their midst. And so, as he comes to his hometown, they're astonished, but they're offended. Why, says Jesus, they're unbelieving. And he, and he can't believe it. He's amazed, the Bible says. He is flabbergasted. He marvels that there could be so much light and so little faith. We are a Reformed church. We have roots in the Reformation. We profess to be Orthodox and to have right teaching. We love faithful teaching. We've done that for 600 years in the Reformation and almost 100 years here at Faith Church since 1936. And, uh, but it's possible, Jesus is saying, it's possible to have so much light And yet not believe in spite of the light. This, friends, is Jesus saying, this is the irrationality of sin and unbelief. That means sin and unbelief doesn't make sense. And when Jesus sees it, he can't believe it. Now, of course, Jesus is God. And as, as God, he knows all things. Nothing surprises the second person of the Trinity. But in his humanity, he is fully man like you or I. And when someone is given the truth of Jesus and they walk away, Jesus is amazed. How could you do that when, when you have so much light? He, he marvels. But of course, uh, over in Luke, Luke tells us the rest of this, this story. Not only are they offended, but over in Luke, after Jesus says the prophet's not honored in his hometown. Remember what they do over in Luke? They drive him to the edge of a cliff, hoping to throw him off. The Bible says Jesus walked through the crowd. That's where offense leads to, of course. It not only does not lead to love and embracing of Jesus, but it leads to wrath and anger against Jesus. Because he's claiming to be our Savior. That means we need one. And he's claiming to be our Lord, which means we're not. <laughs> and uh, here, Jesus sums up the problem in that one word, unbelief. Another passage of scripture, Jesus will say, sinners and prostitutes are, and tax collectors are, are streaming into the king, kingdom. They're coming into the kingdom. The Gentiles who hear the word of the gospel, but sometimes those who had the word, those in his hometown who knew him best, those who grow up in a covenant church who know him best, sometimes have never actually put their faith and trust in him. This is what Jesus is saying, you know, some today might say, I can't believe, and you might have friends like this, you might have family that might say to you, I can't believe anyone would believe this stuff. You know, someone might say that, say, I can't believe anyone would believe in Jesus. I can't, I can't believe someone would actually believe in one who came and then eventually died on the cross 
rose from the dead, heals, raises people from the dead, and is coming again as my judge and Savior. Look, I can't believe someone might say anybody would believe that. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, I can't believe anyone would doubt it. Once you've seen him. Heard him in person? <laughs> or read through the gospel. I can't believe. It's a marvel to me that my friends, my family, all his family will come to believe. But even now, his family, his brothers, did not believe in him. There is no benefit for friends to the hometown of Nazareth just because they knew about Jesus. Even as there's no benefit to you or anyone else who hears of the glorious, wise, and gracious words and mighty works of Jesus. There's no benefit to you at all whatsoever unless uh, you unite what you hear about Jesus with faith and trust in him. That's what the book of Hebrews says, that the Old Testament, they had the gospel preached to them, even as we do, but what they heard did not benefit them. Why not? Because they did not unite it with faith, belief, trust, like Abraham. He, he, he trusted that the promises of God, even though he was like, he was almost dead. He trusted the promises of God were true, no matter what any man might say. And then he lived according to that, that truth. Said Martin Luther, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, said Martin Luther at one time, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, says Luther, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And said, as if indeed it's not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus says Luther, I rage with a fierce and troubled conscience. And that might be some of you or some of your family who only see God as the one who makes demands of them that they know they cannot meet in themselves. The Bible says he could not, he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people. So a few, few people came to him, but he could do no mighty work there. Not because he was without power to do so, if he pleased, but unlike elsewhere, people were not coming to him by faith. Even so, there were some that he healed who did come. But there was no mighty work there because they did not believe. Here, friends, in this passage, the greater familiarity with Jesus, the more, the more bold in their rejection of him. Instead of being the first, as they should have been, to receive the grace offered them as they ought to have been, they drive him away. Remember, Luke tells us they wanted to throw him off a cliff. 
instead of being embraced, believed in, in his hometown where they knew him best, it will be strangers and Gentiles and prostitutes, tax collectors, those outside who will run to him because they see their need of Jesus. Jesus told us already, I've not come to call the righteous. That is, those who believe they have no need of me as their Lord and Savior and prophet, priest and king. I haven't come for those folks because they don't realize they need me. But I've come to call sinners. That is, those who know who they are, who know who Jesus is, who know they need to repent and believe in him as their Lord and Savior. And Jesus says, I, I've told them, I've come. That we might put our hope and faith and trust in him. While Martin Luther did not remain, of course, uh, with a fierce and troubled cons- conscience because the Lord uh, had him in his teaching ministry to teach the book of Romans. And so he read from and taught from these two verses in Romans 1, 16, to go like this. For I'm not ashamed, he read and taught, and he had to work through this passage. And he read, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Luther read that passage, he taught that passage, and then he says this. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it's written, he who through faith is righteous, shall live. There, says Luther, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here, says Luther, here I felt, you ever felt this? Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And there, he says, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon, I ran through the scripture from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God. That is what God does in us. The power of God with which he makes us wise. The strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled, said Luther, my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I'd hated before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, said Luther, that place in Paul was for me Truly, the gate to paradise. The just shall live by faith. And those without faith, the Bible says, the unbelieving will die. Because he who has the Son, by faith, has life. But he who does not have the Son of God, make no mistake, friends, and make no mistake for your children, or your friends, that he who does not have the Son of God by faith will die. So may we be faithful to proclaim the good news as it is 
in Jesus Christ. And may the Lord Jesus uh, marvel at Faith Church. Not because of her unbelief, in spite of all the evidence, but he would marvel, as he did with the centurion, at such great faith that we believe that he says the word and it will come to be. May it be so for our everlasting good and his everlasting glory. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, you told us in the Word that faith is a gift from you. And so, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit working through the Word of God, you would create that faith in us here in this church, created in our children, in our grandchildren, in our friends, in our neighbors. Oh, Lord, that we would hang upon every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And, Lord, so doing, that we would find life, peace, the very gates to paradise, as Luther said, and we would find it in the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, and coming again. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.